even though the Oakland Coliseum uh, arena, the, the complex, the sports complex, even though Finley was a tenant with the A's, they endorsed Jerry Seltzer to buy the team because they dealt with Finley on a day-to-day basis and, and knew what, what a nightmare he was to deal with. Uh, he was extremely thrifty in that he didn't want to hire many people. You know, People who worked at the A's also had to do double duty working for the SEALs as well. So it was it was a, a very tiny operation. He didn't like to spend a lot of money, but it says something when you're when the sports complex where your baseball team is situated as doesn't want that guy to be the owner of, of a new hockey franchise and it actually endorses somebody else. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hi, this is Tim Hanlon. I am the host and curator of this little podcast we call Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to the exploration of what used to be in professional sports. And my thank you for trying us out and listening and putting us into your earbuds. We appreciate all of your comments and suggestions that we've heard thus far in our fledgling first few weeks. You can always get all your Good Seats Still Available needs uh, served at our website, which is goodseatsstillavailable, all one word, .com. You can follow us on Twitter at goodseatsstill. You can also find us on Instagram and what's the other one? Oh, yeah, Facebook. And if you come to our website, you can uh, sign up for our email newsletter, send us a comment, suggestion, whatever. So thank you. Keep them coming and lots more good stuff to come. And and we appreciate we subsist on your comments, suggestions, and your listenership. So thank you. This week's guest is Mark Gretschmill. He has been a a longtime uh, television producer, writer, director in LA and Canada for a number of TV networks. But his current labor of love is something that we'll be exploring uh, a little bit later here in in the show. It's called The California Golden Seals Story. It is a documentary about the nine-year journey of a team that actually existed, for those of you young enough not to remember, in the National Hockey League, starting around 1967 and met its demise in 1976. For those of you who are San Jose Sharks fans today in the NHL, or even Dallas Stars fans in the NHL today, uh, you owe a debt of gratitude to the team that was at its end known as the California Golden Seals, but also in various incarnations was known as the Oakland Seals and the California Seals. As they say, you can look it up. But uh, before you do, give a listen to my interview and conversation with Mark Gretschmill, who uh, spent quite a bit of time creating what I thought was a uh, quite fascinating story about a team that most people have forgotten about, but certainly resonated in the minds of the Bay Area fans that came to see them back in the late 60s and early 70s. So Mark Gretschmill is my uh, my guest. You can find the California Golden Seals story, the documentary. Uh, it's available on iTunes now for uh, ownership, for purchase, for rental, a bunch of different flavors there called the California Golden Seal story. And Mark Gretschmill is my guest. Let's talk to Mark now. Thank you again very much for for taking time. And um, so just one minute of background. I have no idea why I'm doing this podcast. All I know is that um, I kind of do. Uh, I I have my own sort of childhood memories of of sports, uh, mostly from the professional soccer ranks back in the 70s and early 80s. 
Um, And, you know, it's just been a sort of a fascination as teams in the old North American Soccer League came and went. Uh, I became perversely interested in uh, short-lived teams and franchises and why and all that kind of stuff. And and I suspect uh, you had childhood memories that kind of uh, – uh, led you to create this documentary about the uh, the Golden Seals. Is that is is that a fair statement? Yes, uh, actually, I'm uh, I, I'm a, a transplanted Canadian, and uh, my my parents uh, moved our, our family to uh, from Vancouver to the Bay Area when I was seven, and so uh, we started going to Seals games uh, two years later when I was nine back in 1967 because there, there was a new NHL hockey team in the in the Bay Area. So uh, for the next nine seasons, as I was growing up and became a teenager, I went to a lot of Seals games during those nine seasons. So uh, they always always had a a fond uh, place in my heart. So why the Seals then uh, etched in your memory uh, versus, say, some of the other more established teams in the Bay Area? Obviously, a plentiful number of those. Uh, what what sparked your interest in the in the seals uh, specifically, or 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 most most interestingly? Well, in the, in the Bay Area, there were a lot of sports teams. You know, that, I mean, that was part of the reason I think the seals struggled is that there was, you know, the Giants and the Forty ers and the Raiders and the A's and the Warriors and the Oakland Oaks uh, ABA team, uh, and plus college. But uh, you know, I was a big Raiders fan. I was a big Oakland A's fan, but I was also a big hockey fan. So uh, you know, the seals were were uh, you know they were close by and you know you got to see people like Bobby Orr and Bobby Hull and Gordy Howe play and uh, so you know it was a, it was a good fit. It was kind of your adjunct right to professional hockey right given your Canadian roots and probably uh, in your DNA because of those Canadian roots right the whole hockey thing and this is your brother. Ad- yeah yeah my my brothers and I before we went to Seals games we had uh, I think every Canadian kid had a. Uh, little tabletop hockey set you know usually they had uh, Montreal and Toronto and you would play with that and we used to play hours and hours on that and then they get to see the guys play in real life so that was fantastic all right so we'll get into some of the um, the trials and tribulations of the team uh, in a few minutes but I, I kind of want to get into a little bit of the background of the story as to uh, why as a grown-up professional um, ostensibly in the television production uh, industry and business uh, why the story, why the personal project, why the financial uh, uh, investment in uh, producing a, a documentary about the team and, and, and making one, uh, you know, uh, maybe for posterity. But I'm just curious to what, why the, uh, the extra effort to create the, uh, the actual movie itself? Uh, well, I, I always thought their story was, was an interesting one. And, and uh, when I grew up after I went to film school and uh, – I started a 20-year career in television news, and I actually did uh, do a couple of news stories about the team, about their history. But you know, those were only about you know four minutes long, uh, four or five minutes long. And uh, uh, later on, I became a documentary producer. I was I was a producer with the E Entertainment Television on and off for uh, about 10 years. So I I did 25 episodes of a show called True Hollywood Story. So you know, I, I knew how to do a long form documentaries. And, um, you know, with the seals, I, 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 it was always in the back of my mind. I said, I, w- I want to do this. You know, I would like to tell their story, but you know, what's, it's uh, much more complicated to do a, a feature length documentary as opposed to doing a, a news story. I knew there was going to be a certain amount of expenses involved because there's a licensing fee with the NHL. 
Um, uh, you know, the places that license footage, you know, they, they don't give it away for free, but, but luckily, you know, a lot of places, they, they, uh, they, they gave me a, a greatly reduced rate. I mean, they, I think they recognized that this was kind of a historical documentary and that I wasn't going to be making a lot of money on it. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I, uh, my goal is if I could just break even on my cost, I'll be happy. Uh, and that, that's, that's a big question mark. Um, you know, as I mentioned, this was, this was like a labor of love. I really wanted to tell the story and, and, uh, with the crowdfunding, the crowdfunding, all the people who, who stepped forward and donated money to, you know, to get a, you know, a, a download of the film or a DVD or, a or, uh, you know, I would, I bought, I think, I, I don't know how much money I spent on eBay buying up seals, uh, hats and, and beanies and, uh, programs and, and people donated to get those. So how a good chunk of the budget was raised. So when you're setting to do uh, a story like this about a team that uh, doesn't have a whole lot of pieces available or or easily discoverable, uh, at what point do you realize that um, uh, this pursuit that is fun and and intriguing and and you maybe learn some things that maybe you didn't know about when you were a kid becomes – so complicated and or potentially financially draining and um, just a, a, a huge time suck uh, from your real world life. Yeah, it, it you know it it became evident pretty quickly that um, you know the the time factor was going to be a lot. I mean, I I believe I spent more than a thousand hours on this. Uh, I, I did it over a two and a half period. I I, I did I never. It was never a full-time thing. There's sometimes there where I would I'd work a few weeks on it uh, and nothing else. But I, I, do, I do need to pay the bills, so uh, I would have freelance jobs where you know, maybe I would work solid for a few months, or uh, and then I would just work on this in the evenings or on the weekends. Um, but you know, it 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 wasn't. You know, the, I know it's a cliche when people say hey, if you're doing something that you love, it's not a, a, not a job. Uh, you know, I really enjoy doing this. You know, the, the, the only frustrating moments were sometimes with, you know, uh, like licensing and getting people to call you back or, uh, you know, uh, negotiating with people about footage or waiting to hear people return your calls. Uh, that, that sometimes wouldn't, wasn't fun, but you know, if you start a project and think, you know, that you can get everything lined up beforehand, you know, it's never going to happen. Sometimes you just have to dive in and hope things do start happening. And, and, and it did, you know, I, I uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a tremendous amount of fa- satisfaction to, to take something from point A to point Z. And, uh, you know, it's nice to be at point Z right now. So the movie we're referencing is called the California golden seals story. It's available right now. Where Mark? It's uh, it's available only on iTunes. So, uh, if you, if you look for, uh, Go to the iTunes website or just Google iTunes and California Golden Seal Story. You can uh, either uh, buy it and download it or, uh, or, or rent it. So that, that's the, the one place, iTunes. And now I am a, a proud owner of the movie myself. And uh, I got to tell you, it was, uh, it, was, it was very interesting to watch and um, uh, lots of little interesting little uh, bits and pieces. But maybe we should start from the start, right? Um, okay. 1967 really was kind of, sort of the, the precursor to all of this. Um, how did the uh, how did the actual how did the the seals at the time not even golden seals how did they even sort of come into existence they kind of just magically popped up uh, yeah, in this in this league that only had six teams up until that point 
right. In, in, uh, for 1967, the NHL had decided to expand from six teams to 12, and they wanted to, you know, get, uh, you know, have teams west of Chicago. Uh, so uh, there was some places that were like kind of a natural selection to get teams, like maybe Seattle, Vancouver, uh, you know, Edmonton or Calgary. And uh, the NHL had signed a TV contract with the CBS Television, uh, and CBS wanted to have two teams in the biggest markets and two of the biggest markets in the United States in California, and that was Los Angeles and uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. So that's why uh, places like Vancouver didn't get an NHL team at the time, but Los Angeles and uh, uh, Oakland and San Francisco did. And that's, uh, that's how the Seals came to be. But it seemed, though, that as a as a premise for a team, uh, th- there was a minor league team there, right, which was somewhat successful already, no? Right. Uh, for those people who don't know about how the, the San Francisco Bay Area is set up, uh, there's the East Bay and there's also San Francisco. San Francisco uh, is se- they're separated by bridges. Um, and in San Francisco, there was the Western Hockey League San Francisco Seals, minor league team that played at the old San Francisco Cow Palace, which is uh, it's still there. It was like a World War II era building. It's kind of a barn, uh, but they had a pretty solid uh, fan base there. Um, and when the NHL, uh, when the Seals owners got the, uh, the franchise, they actually bought the old Western Hockey League Seals team to uh, use it as a foundation for the NHL team. Uh, the NHL wanted the Seals to play not in the Cow Palace in San Francisco, but across the bay, across these bridges in uh, the city of Oakland, which had just built a brand new um, uh, Oakland Coliseum, uh, Oakland Coliseum uh, sports complex that had a uh, 50,000 seat uh, football stadium, baseball, and right next door, uh, a new arena that held uh, 12,500 fans. So it was a, at that time, it was a state-of-the-art arena, and that's where they wanted them to play. The only problem is there's a psychological thing in the Bay Area that, you know, I grew up in the East Bay in Alameda, and, you know, going over to San Francisco was kind of a big deal. You know, you had to, you know, cross the bridge, get in the car, pay a toll. There's a whole psychological thing about going over to the city, and that worked in reverse. So people that from uh, the city didn't want to cross the bridge and go into, into the, the East Bay. So... Um, a lot of the fans from uh, the San Francisco Seals didn't follow the team across the bay. And the problem was that people in the East Bay really didn't know a lot about hockey. Uh, at that time, I believe in the entire, you know, millions and millions of people uh, populated uh, Bay Area, I think there were, there were maybe only three hockey rinks, uh, ice skating rinks in, in that, uh, in, for all those people. So there wasn't a huge, huge fan base at that point. Well, so, I mean, I, obviously history is, uh, uh, you know, 2020 hindsight, right? But, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't sound like fertile ground for uh, a professional sports league that's uh, looking to double its size uh, almost overnight and, and go national with a national television contract, does it? Right, yeah. I mean, I remember there's a famous story about Jack Ken Cook, who, who uh, owned the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, got the L.A. Kings, he also owned the, uh, the, uh, the Lakers, uh, when he got the LA Kings franchise, he said, um, uh, "So you know, hockey is going to be a success because uh, there's a half a million Canadians living in Los Angeles." And then when the Kings struggled to 
to uh, get people into the stands. He said, now I know why all those Canadians live in Los Angeles. They all hate hockey. You know, so it was kind of the same thing in the Bay Area. Um, uh, it, it was an uphill struggle. Um, and, but but the team made a lot of mistakes early on. The, the, the price of the tickets was, was higher than people wanted to pay. Uh, pay. At, at the very first game, the season opener, uh, Against the Philadelphia Flyers, the, the the stadium was only the arena was only half full. I think it was about six six thousand fans. So uh, uh, so that was a problem. And things really got worse right at the beginning because um, the Seals ownership, the the uh, the fellow running the, the franchise, was a guy named Barry Van Gerbing, who was a Olympic hockey player, uh, who was I believe the godson of Bing Crosby. Um, and he was kind of like a socialite guy, well-connected. He knew a lot of the NHL uh, movers and shakers, which is how he got the job as the front man for the SEALs. Uh, but the team was basically financed by a lot of people. I think one estimate was that there were over 50 investors who had money in the team. And, you know, you could say that a lot of these people were kind of like, like rich guys who, who uh, said, oh, yeah, sure, I'd, I'd like to be a part owner of, a, of an NHL franchise. And they really didn't know what they were getting into. Um, and so right from the beginning, when the SEALs realized that they didn't, uh, they didn't, they weren't filling a lot of seats, that was a problem. Another problem was that their coach, uh, Bert Olmstead, who's also the, their general manager. Hall of Famer, right? NHL Hall of Famer, right? Yeah. A great NHL player, but um, sometimes you can be a great player that, that doesn't make you a, a, a great coach. And he alienated a lot of the players. You know, there, there's some famous incidents where, uh, uh, you know, he had the team on a Thanksgiving Day practice. He was disgusted with how the team was playing, and he made the players sit all afternoon in the locker room to to contemplate their their lot in life. Uh, and then one of the early the early practices, um, he had the team come out, and there's a, there's a drill in hockey called starts and starts. Uh, stops and starts where you all the guys they line up on one side of the rink and you you go sideways or or, or you can go, go forward too and you just rush as fast as you can to the other side and you stop dead stop right before the boards and then you go back and you just go back and forth and it's really really tough on your legs and uh, some of the players say you know you do it maybe four or five times maximum uh, and you're exhausted and he had them do it for a couple of hours, and, and guys were throwing up, and uh, uh, and they weren't very happy about it. So uh, there was a lot of animosity with the coach. So so the team had low morale. They didn't have a lot of people in the stands, uh, and so almost immediately um, they started talking about moving the team to Vancouver or to Buffalo or to Seattle. And when those rumors hit, you know, when people are thinking, well, you know, I just bought season tickets, you know, or I mean, why should I go to a a, a team that's going to be moving anyway, so that that really that really affected the uh, the 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 ticket sales, especially that first season. Well, it, it looks like even in that first season, there were some even some other uh, well, some 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 self inflicted uh, uh, wounds, but also a few other sort of things of fate. I mean, the the one thing that struck me um, uh, in that very first season was they actually changed the name of the team a couple of games into the season. Right, it was actually. Well, so what was that? Right. Well, originally they were called the the California uh, Seals, uh, and uh, it's kind of like you know, like remember the the Anaheim, uh, the, uh, the Angels? They were called the California Angels instead of the Anaheim Angels, which sure. uh, 
uh, and so it was, uh, and they decided to change it a few months into Oakland Seals to maybe create some more identity in the city of Oakland so that people would, you know, kind of rally towards the team. That was more of a cosmetic thing. So, uh, so the first season didn't really go that well. Um, the second season uh, was a big turnaround, actually. And what happened then, uh, even though the team was still struggling with, with uh, ticket sales, um, the, there's a gentleman named Frank Selke who was working in the front office, and there's a trophy named after him. Uh, he took over as the general manager. He hired a guy named Bill Torrey. Uh, for, those, for those of you who don't know a lot about hockey history, uh, Bill Torrey would later build the dynasty with the New York Islanders, uh, winning four straight Stanley Cups. So you have Fra- Frank Selke and Bill Torrey running the hockey operation while the team's ownership was in disarray. They were they were selling the team. The, the new buyers were defaulting, would, would go back to the original owners. They were, they were trying to get rid of the, the, the team, but the hockey operation was actually doing quite well. And in seasons two and three, the Seals... They went from last place their first season to second place in their division the second season, uh, and they, they were in the playoffs seasons two and three. So they were actually improving a lot on the ice. They were making some really good uh, decisions in, with the people that they were drafting, so they were really building up. And then what happened um, after season three is uh, uh, when a gentleman named Charles O. Finley bought the team, and that uh, uh, that. Uh, that created the uh, horrific horror that's known as the Seals' middle middle years. Well, okay. So, I mean, you brought it up. I, I have a couple of other questions I wanted to even get to even before we got to that. But Charlie Finley, right, clearly is um, uh, a, a polarizing figure and a, a notable one in, in professional sports writ large, right? Uh, obviously, Oakland A's and the whole story behind that and, and some of the other dalliances that uh, that Charlie sort of brought to uh, professional sports. But uh, you're talking about basically already even before Charlie, you know, steps in, uh, you know, middle of the summer of 1970. Right. You're, you're talking about a team that's already effectively been owned by one entity, um, uh, was attempting to sell itself or actually was sold. Uh, and then reverted back to the original owner. So you really had the team kind of already change hand three times uh, before, I guess, Charlie steps in kind of middle of 1970 to, I guess, quote unquote, save the day. But he, he had uh, he wasn't the only one interested in the team, right, at that at that point? Right. Um, Charlie Finley, now you, just for those of you who don't know who, uh, out there who don't know who Charlie Finley is, he was a very flamboyant, publicity-loving guy. He made his money um, uh, selling insurance uh, to doctors, uh, and he was very wealthy. He had bought the Oakland A's baseball team uh, and wound up winning three World Series in a row, and he did it on a, on a, on a very, very small budget. Uh, this was before free agency. He loved to publicize himself. He loved to be in front of the cameras, um, so when the seals, he stepped forward and said, "I want to buy the, I want to buy the seals," you know. And unfortunately, he'd also bragged how he had only seen one seal, one hockey game ever 
before he bought the team. So well, well, a lot of well, well, I'm sorry, Mark. What was the quote that that's, uh, uh, I think, a, a really perfect one in the, in the movie? Uh, you've got the footage of him at the press conference. You remember what he said? Right. When he, after he bought the team, he, he announced to the press, uh, I want you to know, I don't know the first thing about hockey, which, uh, and then it cuts to Frank Selke and Bill Torrey sitting on the, on the stage and, and the look of horror on their faces because they could see what was coming down the, coming down the railroad tracks. Um, yeah, he, uh, yeah, that was a big, uh, people wonder why he ever wanted to buy an NHL team. But, but, at, but at the time you mentioned that, that he wasn't the only person and you're exactly right. Um, there was a gentleman named Jerry Seltzer, Jerry Seltzer, uh, his family created roller derby, which back in the sixties and seventies was actually a pretty popular sport. Jerry Seltzer was a very, very smart guy. He was a, a master promoter. He took roller derby. He he put together all these independent TV stations across North America, and they were running roller derby uh, in you know places like Madison Square Garden, Maple you know in in, in Toronto and and uh, you know, arenas all across North America, and making it a success. So he got together with the owners of three American Football League teams because it was the AFL and the NFL at that time. And they got together, they got the money, and he made a, a, a play to, to buy the Seals. Um, and he, he, you know, he, he was a very smart man. They created a 100-plus page document with an entire marketing plan, the, how they were going to market the Seals, how they were going to sell hockey in the Bay Area, what they were going to do with players, how they were going to draft. Uh, Charles Finley, his entire proposal was a one-page memo. So... Uh, those were the two people that the NHL approved that they were considered uh, uh, that, that that could buy the team. Uh, both men go to uh, to New York to meet uh, with the NHL uh, board. Uh, they sit in the conference room, uh, and Charles Finley lobbied extensively, telling the the owners, "You know, hey, I'm just like you. You know, I'm going to run this thing. You know, I'm, I, I'm just like you guys that came up from the from the street. Blah blah blah." Uh, and uh, rather than give it to Jerry Seltzer, they give it to Charles Finley. And as, as uh, one of the uh, one of the interviews said, uh, they regretted it ever since. Um, and uh, I, I managed to uh, to sit down with Jerry Seltzer, and he opened up about the whole story. And that was that was wonderful. Like what uh, what hockey might have been at that time if if they had let him buy the team. Well, in other words, you're, you're, I, I, my sense is that uh, that's that, that that Finley was looked upon as more of a quote unquote sports establishment guy, right? Obviously with his baseball holdings and, and his success there, right? That uh, there was maybe more of a comfort level with the NHL Board of Governors versus somebody who was a little bit more, um, you know, uh, show perhaps, which yeah, is th ironic. That, that's, that's the funny thing is that Jerry Seltzer said, even though uh, the Oakland Coliseum uh, arena, the, the complex, the sports complex, even though Finley was a tenant with the A's, they endorsed Jerry Seltzer uh, to to buy the team because they dealt with Finley on a day to day basis and, and knew what what a nightmare he was to deal with. Uh, he was extremely uh, thrifty in that he didn't want to hire many people. You know, people who worked for the Seals uh, for the A's also had to do double duty working for the Seals as well. <laughs> so it was it was a, a very tiny operation. Uh, uh, he didn't like to spend a lot of money, but. It says something when you when uh, the, the 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 sports complex where your your uh, baseball team 
is situated as doesn't want that guy to be the owner of, of a new hockey franchise and, and actually endorses somebody else. Another legendary story, and again, this is exactly why the story of this team is just is it's it's fascinating. I can imagine why. I'm sure you uh, just it, the, the story just tells itself. Um, unfortunately, it costs money to tell that story, which you've done. But all right, so let's get into Finley, right? So probably nobody in the history of the team probably was more, um, uh, I guess, notable uh, because he brought in a whole bunch of changes. One of which was to change the name of the team to. California Seals, right from Oakland, which I, oh, if yeah, I'm California not, Golden Seals, yeah. Gold, okay, which, um, which uh, I guess according to my notes here, that actually occurred a couple of games into the season as well, or did that start at the beginning of the season? Uh, I I don't remember the exact timing. Uh, I know they were struggling with the name. They were talking about calling it. They didn't want the words Oakland in, in the title. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were talking about calling it the Bay Area Seals. They actually made some some penance with that, uh, uh, but they settled on California Golden Seals. The Golden uh, Finley's A's, they wore Kelly Green and Gold uniforms, and so uh, so he changed the uniforms for the Seals to Kelly Green and Gold as well. Uh, they were a little loud. Uh, you know, a lot of people liked them. I, I liked them. Some people didn't, but that was, you know, that was his prerogative to, to get new uniforms. Uh he also the first season he skated he uh, he painted the skates uh, green and gold which was a little bit of a a change for a lot of players. Uh, I, I don't want to jump ahead too far in the story, but the, the following season he actually introduced white ice skates. Uh, they were called polar bear white ice skates because the Oakland A's wore white white uh, baseball shoes, so he wanted the. Uh, uh, the seals to wear white ice skates, uh, and we can talk about more about that now or later. No, I, I, I uh, love. But, I think it's important to bring up the white skates because it seems to me, and 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 for those who uh, have seen the documentary or will, again for those who have uh, not remembered, we're talking about the um, uh, the the film called the California Golden Seal Story. Um, it seems to be one of the things, if not the thing, that people, if anything, remember about the team. Uh, are the white skates right? That's uh, all the players I, I interviewed. They said when was it when they hear that they played for the Seals, the first thing they bring up are the white skates. <laughs> uh, and you know, if you're a Canadian hockey player, uh, you know when you grew up, the only people who wore white ice skates were female figure skaters. So there was a lot of ridicule about uh, they received from fans and from. Uh, from the other players about wearing white ice skates and and the white skates caused some problems because back in that day there was still a lot of black and white televisions so you're wearing white ice skates on white uh, on the white ice a lot of times it looked like the players were skating on stumps um, Finley was fanatical that the skates be spotless like white uh, but during the course of a game, you know, they get marked up. They get marked up by the pucks, you know, by collisions, by going into the boards. Sure. So they would get, like, you know, black marks on them. So Finley insisted that the trainers, after every game, get a paintbrush and retouch the skate. So they had to be hand-painted again. And uh, during the course of the season, and I thought the players were joking when they told me this, but they were serious. 
there was so much paint on the skates that they they would they would get heavier and heavier and would actually cost them uh you know uh, to lose a couple of steps uh you know when they're going for the puck because there was so much weight that they were carrying around with those skates well he certainly it seemed to me that finley had a lot of uh, uh fascination with with color in general right because there's a, there's a little bit in the doc you talk about uh there's the orange pucks uh, did that ever actually happen or was that just more of an experiment Right. He wanted to do that with baseball, too. He wanted to, I think, introduce an orange or yellow baseball, which was rejected. They, they, I think they tried it out. Uh, I think I saw one of them on eBay not too long ago. Uh, and then with the orange pucks, he wanted to introduce that, and that did not go over well. I don't know if that was necessarily a bad idea. I mean, it, it might have been interesting to... Uh, to, to try it out, but at that at that time the NHL was was very conservative. Uh, and one of the, one of the things that, that he did do, I mean, he threw a lot of ideas out. Some of them were pretty bad, but some of them were were, were you know interesting. Is he was the first? Uh, they were the first NHL team to put their names on the back of their jerseys uh, mm-hmm. like during the regular season. I think uh, one team had tried that as a pregame a preseason thing, but uh, that was the first time you know the players' names were on their jerseys. And there was a lot of pushback on that because some some NHL cities said, well, hey, wait a minute. Uh, if people come to the games and they can see the names on the jerseys, why are they going to buy a program? You know, that'll, that'll cost me program sales. So some cities, uh, I believe Toronto and Detroit, insisted that the SEALs uh, uh, travel with a second pair of uniforms, road uniforms, without the names on the back because they were worried that would – uh, cut into their program sales. It's uh, it's comical, just comical. Yes, yes, yeah. But you know, Finley, like he, he was a master promoter, and he had all these these ideas about you know selling the team, and he always wanted to be front and center on these things. You know, he did a thing where uh, he thought, you know, he thought, well, how how do I promote hockey? So where do people talk about sports? And he wanted to do. Uh, he thought oh, barber shops. People talk about sports and barber shops. So he had he got the brilliant idea of uh, inviting barbers from all over the, the San Francisco Bay Area to come to this high-priced restaurant uh, in Oakland, uh, and he was going to have a big party for them, an open bar. Uh, and uh, the idea was, uh, you know, after the, the party, they're going to show some films about the seals, and then he, he was going to get all the, the give them free tickets, and then then get the barbers to talk about, you know, hockey with uh, their customers, and that would bring drive thousands of people to Seals games. Uh, unfortunately, uh, at that at that event, uh, they had an open bar, and so uh, the, the the by the time they do the presentation, most of the the, the barbers were already plastered. Uh, so the uh, the promotion didn't really go didn't go all that well so, so uh, okay so why why so if, with a guy like finley right he's such a master showman and promoter and, and maybe even self-promoter right um yeah it seems like it, it, the stories that you're telling here he, he lavished money on on promotions like that and open bars yet he was so parsimonious with the salaries for his players yes yeah that, that's that's the thing was the, the all the players said it was in some ways he was so generous uh he was the first, uh, they were the first NHL team to fly first class. Back in that day, I mean, now they all fly on private jet charters and, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't travel with the public. It's, uh, you know, they got to have the first class big seats and, you know, uh, but back then they used to seals, you know, all, all the, all the sports teams at the NBA, uh, I believe most major league baseball, 
they would just travel with the public on a regular commercial flight. Uh, so Finley said, "No, look, you guys, if you're going to go on these long flights to, to the East Coast, you're going to you're going to fly first class." And uh, uh, the guys talked about, uh, you know, at that time the the Boeing 747 was a brand new airplane, and uh, you know they, they the team got to the to the uh, airport. They had never been on a, a 747 before. One of the guys. You know, he, he they go on the plane. He, he goes up the steps to the upper deck, which is where the, the first class lounge was. You know, and as a joke, he goes in the bathroom, strips to his shorts, splashes water all over himself, comes down the steps, and announces to the uh, to the rest of his teammates, "Hey guys, come out upstairs. You know, the pool's great." So uh, that was uh, <laughs> that was kind of like a um, a change of pace to travel first class for them. Um, so Finley would do that. He would, you know, they every once in a while they would have an upset, and uh, uh, he would like take the team out to uh, Gucci's in New York, to, to, and he would treat all the players to like a new a new suit. Um, he would give them like you know three hundred dollar bonuses if they played a really good game. So in that in that way he was generous. Um, where he wasn't generous was when. Uh, uh, the New World Hockey Association started yeah. up, uh, and they were looking to, you know, pluck players from the NHL. Mm-hmm. Uh, Finley refused to up the salaries for his players, and the Seals wound up losing uh, nine players uh, to the WHA more than any other team, and that that kind of sealed their fate uh, during that era as as a sports. Franchise. But one person, one person that comes up in the in the documentary is, is almost a uh, uh, a bastion of stability uh, on the player side uh, who did not leave in that exodus is uh, is their goalie Gilles Meloche. No. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Gilles Meloche was was uh, uh, I, I interviewed Wayne Gretzky for this film and Wayne and Wayne Gretzky said that he thought for a two or three year period that Gilles Meloche was probably the best player in the NHL, which, which, uh, kind of, kind of surprised me that, that, uh, with all the people to choose from that he recognized how important, uh, the seals goalie was, uh, the seals when when Joe Malash started, and I remember this happening, uh, they got him in a trade. He, he wasn't even the goalie they wanted. They, they had traded, uh, with Chicago to get a, a goalie. That goalie, um, had some health problems or had an injury, so they sent him back, and they they sent uh, 21-year-old Joe Malash to the Seals. Uh, he had only played in a few NHL games, so the Seals uh, they're going to Boston. They're playing against the Boston Bruins, one of the probably the strongest team in the NHL that year. Uh, just a fearsome opponent, uh, and they they go to to Boston and they tell 21-year-old Joe Malash, who expected when he was traded to go to the minor leagues because. At that time, there weren't any goalies that young playing in the NHL. They tell him he's going to start against the Boston Bruins, and he's terrified. He, he figures he's going to get bombarded, uh, and uh, uh, you know his, his career is going to be over. Uh, so uh, the, the other Seals players were saying they said their, their, their aim that night was just to maybe you know to put the other Boston to sleep and <laughs> and and try not to get beat too badly, and then just sneak out of there after they lose. Um, so the game starts, and Joe Malash has uh, w- probably the game of his life. Uh, they're, they're dramatically outshot, uh, and they wind up shoot, uh, shutting out the Boston Bruins 2 to nothing. 
And that season, Boston was only shut out twice. And the other time was at the end of the season in a nothing game after they were waiting for the playoffs. But that that was a shocker. And I remember in the Bay Area media, the reports, I remember the next day, what, the Seals? Seals not only beat Boston, they beat Boston two to nothing. It it was was such a dramatic victory. And we go into into a bit of depth of, about that in the in the documentary. Um, so, uh, with with uh, Jill Malash as their goalie, the team felt like they finally had all the right moving parts. Uh, yeah, but unfortunately, a lot of things happened. You know, the, uh, uh, the we mentioned Bill Torrey and Frank Selke, who had you know, masterminded the rebuilding of the Seals. When Finley took over the team, he forced both of them out. Uh, so they departed, and so uh, you have a guy who who brags about never having only seen one hockey game before he bought the team, now making all these major hockey decisions, which uh, which not which was not a good recipe. Well, it seems in in the in the movie, uh, uh, any of these sort of victories, any of the victories that do happen with the team, almost feel like they're pyrrhic victories, right? Where they're sort of you know it's a David versus Goliath kind of kind of things where, you know, those wins are celebrated, but uh, unfortunately don't come uh, often enough. I, th- I thought there was a really great um, little uh, aside about uh, almost, I guess, a microcosm of, of the team in my mind um, is a guy named Morris Mott. Um, right, do you want to yeah, talk about yeah. that little story about sort of how he uh, sort of was, was adopted, I guess, by some of the other NHLers out there? Right. You know, the Seals, you know, after the WHA raided the team, uh, Finley was spending less and less time trying to build up the franchise. So the Seals were like, you know, they were in last place. Uh, Finley, I believe, owned the team in four seasons. Um, their last season that Finley owned the team, uh, the Seals did not even have, uh, not, not only did they not have a TV contract, uh, very few of the games were ever televised in the Bay Area. They did not even have a radio contract, so you couldn't even listen to the, the Seals games on the radio. It was, it was that bad. Um, and the Seals were, were the laughing stock of the NHL. And it got to the point where, where players, uh, you know, fans in some of the other cities actually started to feel sorry for the Seals. Uh, and, and one city was New York, uh, and you know, they, 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 they saw that the Seals had a, a, a guy, a journeyman player named Morris Mott, on on the on the team, and he was you know he was a he was you know he was a he was a, a journeyman player you know he wasn't a star, didn't get a lot of goals, uh, but they decided they really liked that name it was a unique name Morris Mott, uh, and so <laughs> they formed the Rangers fans formed the Morris Mott Fan Club, uh, and they put up banners at the at the game Morris Mott Fan Club. They toasted him with more uh, Mott's or uh, apple juice. <laughs> Uh, they actually met with him after the game. So whenever they, the, the Seals would come to uh, Madison Square Garden, there would be all these banners for the Morris Mott fan club. And, and one of the players tells the story that one time they were driving up in the team bus to uh, to uh, Madison Square Garden, and on the front of the big, big giant light-up sign, and in, uh, um, in, in small letters it says, uh, the, the New York Rangers welcome, and in giant letters, Morris Mott, and in little letters below it, and the California Golden Seals. And uh, so the players all laughed uh, when they saw that. Yeah, that sounds like a Spinal Tap moment, right? Uh, puppet yeah. show and Spinal Tap. Right. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, well, it, it wasn't uh, so. Uh, before we get off uh, into the the transition from Finley, I, there were I mean a couple other things I just I wanted to highlight. I thought there were just it, it seems like the fans at home though those that did show um, still had some fun though, right? Do you want to talk about uh, the streaker and uh, maybe even Crazy George? Right. Yeah. You know I, the thing I remember you know, there there were some games when there would be twenty five hundred fans in the arena. And then other times, you know, the, the, the you know they, the seals would sometimes sell out if like the Rangers or Boston would come into town, but you know sellouts were not that often, so the place would be like maybe half full or uh, you know a third full. But the seals fans were really loud, and I didn't realize how 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 uh, how loud they were until I started my TV career. I was working up in Edmonton, and this was during the Gretzky era. And at the Northlands Coliseum would be sixteen thousand fans, and uh, it would be really quiet. And I thought, you know, it was much louder at the Coliseum uh, with the Seals than it was in Edmonton. I think I think it's gotten louder there now, but that that, that really hit me. Um, so you know, the Seals had a booster club that was very very loyal to the players. Uh, so the fans were 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 pretty. You know, they they really stuck with them. Um, so one of the things the Seals. They, with Finley, they not spending much money on the team. Uh, the marketing people really had to come up with ways to promote it. Um, one year, their entire advertising budget was five thousand dollars <laughs> for the whole season. So they had to do everything with that, and they could afford. And, and in today's one, in today today's dollars, that's what fifteen thousand, uh, right? I mean, it's just nothing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's you know, I can't even imagine. I mean, they do promotions on one night that cost much more than that, you Certainly. know, and and. Uh, um, but you know, they, they could afford one billboard by a freeway. Um, so they had to think outside the box. And one of the things in the early seventies, there was a lot of uh, streaking going along where, where like college students where people would, you know, strip and then and run naked across the campus. And sure. it was, it was a big, a big deal at that time. So what they did is they paid, uh, the girlfriend of the stick boy to come to a game. And I was, I was actually at that game. <laughs> uh, and, uh, she came underneath the stands and she came out with, uh, with, uh, just the skates on. And they had told the photographers there, it's, Oh, you might want to stand over on that side. You know, something might happen, uh, you know, when the players come back on the ice. And, uh, so she skated across the ice and the place just went crazy and screaming and yelling. And, uh, not only do we have a, uh, a photo of that uh, of that event, uh, but someone sent me some Super 8 film that they shot of her skating across the ice, and, and that's in the movie. So, Worth the price of admission right there, friends. Right, yeah, yeah. And they got a, uh, and, and the coverage they got for that stunt was, was, was uh, tremendous. So uh, that, that, those are the types of things they had to do to promote the team. Um, you also spent a couple of minutes with, uh, as well, uh, in there with... Uh, uh, a high school teacher who just became sort of the ultimate sort of super fan, and um, it's actually somebody I want to get on uh, on a future uh, uh, show, uh, is Crazy George Henderson. Yes, Crazy George uh, was a high school teacher in the Bay Area. Uh, one day, one of the, one of his school sporting teams decides to uh, go to a Seals game and they invite him along. So he had he would uh, you know he would at his school he would like you know bring this drum and, and, and uh, pound the drum. So he brought that along and he started pounding the drum and he, and he started, you know, directing the section, the people around him to like to cheer and, and the fans loved it. 
And uh, so after the game, uh, one of the SEALs guys uh, came up to him and said, look, you know, whenever you want to come to a game, you know, we'll give you a, a free ticket. And so he came to a few more, and then they actually hired him. I believe they, they paid him $50 per game to come. And it was such a, a crowd pleaser. And I, I remember, like, he'd always come in, um, you know, sometime during the first period. There'd be a break in the play, and he would run up, uh, like, at ice level with his drum and, and pound, 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 and everybody would just go nuts. And he would he would run through the stands like a wild man, you know, directing cheers on this side and that side. He, he claims he, he's the guy who invented the wave, mm-hmm. although that's this uh, that's disputed. So... He became a really popular uh, member of the, the SEALs organization, and uh, uh, he actually became so popular that other teams, sporting teams, uh, started hiring him, uh, and he, he quit his job as a teacher, and he had actually a very nice career as a professional sports leader. Uh, I interviewed him for the documentary, and uh, he's, I believe, 71 or 72 now, and he's still, he's still doing uh, the cheerleading, although he said not as much as he used to. Yeah. But um, he was incredibly popular. In fact, he, he became a tool for the SEALs uh, because he would, what he would do is he would, he would sneak down to the right behind the glass. So if there was a face-off about to happen, uh, he would get behind the opposing player and right before the, the face-off just pound the drum and the guys would just jump up in the air because <laughs> they hadn't you know, experienced anything like that. Uh, there was one game where they were playing against Boston and that Terry O'Reilly of the Bruins, their enforcer was was in the uh, in the penalty box, and uh, George snuck down behind him and pounded the drum. And the guy uh, first he threw his the gloves at him, then he threw his stick at him, and then Terry O'Reilly he climbed out of the penalty penalty box and chased uh, Crazy George up up the stands with uh, in his skates. So that was uh, that was another dramatic moment. There. I. I- I got I got to get George on. Uh, hopefully, I have not reached out yet, but uh, I'd love to. I think I became uh, aware of him from uh, my fandom of the uh, New York Cosmos NASL team and uh, his, uh, you know, the uh, away games against the uh, the San Jose Earthquakes. And I think that's right. where I yeah, I think that's one of his. I believe that's one of his contracts still was with, with, with the Earthquakes. So. Well, so from those sort of happy and and uh, uh, fun-filled times, uh, I think we kind of uh, maybe segue now into sort of the denouement of the of the of the team. Um, you know, it looks like Finn, from your description and from uh, how you depict it in the in the movie, it it almost feels like Finley kind of just lost interest and or was kind of sort of going through the motions. And so you want to maybe let's circle around seventy four, seventy five when uh, the team basically gets sold yet again. Right. Yeah, it was uh, in uh, early 74, I believe it was. It was uh, uh, halfway through the 73-74 season. Um, uh, Finley had cut the ticket prices in half. Uh, it was it, no interest in the team or, or very little interest. And, you know, it was almost like he was you know, thumbing his nose at the NHL because it was becoming an embarrassment to the league that this team was uh, – uh, not getting, you know, that it was not being supported by its owner. I thought, so, by uh, way, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Rock. I, I thought, actually, uh, I've done some research on, on Finley. I, I always uh, thought, and I'm not sure where I read this, that that he was actually, Finley was actually living in Chicago, and his, his brother was running the team, maybe, but it, it locally? Uh, uh, he, uh, he he was based out of, I believe, his, his company was in Chicago. I believe right. his home was in Indiana. Sure. 
Uh, and then he had a, a residence in the Bay Area because that's one of the things he had told the NHL that he wanted he, he would reside in the Bay Area. But uh, I, he was not in the Bay Area that often. Uh, I remember distinctly seeing him at one game uh, where he sat in the stands with someone else wearing his green blazer and fans coming up to him and talking to him. But uh, he was, uh, and, and a lot of the players mentioned how uh, they almost never saw him. Uh, Richie Leach, who later became a, um, a superstar with the Philadelphia Flyers, he was with the Seals, and he talked about he only saw him once during his time with the with, with the club. Um, yeah, he had a, a I can't remember right now if it was his cousin or, uh, uh, but there was another a relative that that had to do a lot of Charlie's. Uh, I wouldn't say dirty work, but. He was part of the small uh, group of people that Finley had around him to help with baseball and hockey. Um, but uh, when the NHL uh, bought the team back from Finley, Finley being the, the master businessman he was, uh, actually got enough money to pay uh, back, uh, you know, to to cover all his losses that he actually made uh, money by selling the team back to the NHL. And one of the quotes. Uh, uh, John Porter, who was a beat writer for the team for the Oakland Tribune, uh, talked to him and, and Finley told him off the record. He goes, "Yeah, I really screwed them, didn't I?" So that was uh, uh, that was kind of the uh, the attitude that uh, Finley had toward the NHL. So, if the league now was owning uh, owning and running the team, uh, the white skates went away, right? Uh, what else changed? Well, they, they they went to black skates right away for the rest of the season. And they finally, you know, they had the Seals had a coach, a guy named Fred Glover, for a good chunk of that time, who was not really, uh, you, you wouldn't call him a modern era coach. Um, he was a, a, a great player in the American Hockey League. He didn't really spend much time in the NHL. He was kind of a frustrated uh, guy because he wa- he wanted to be in the NHL, and as a coach, he was not that effective because. The Seals' practices, and the players complained about this, were were basically just scrimmages. You know, they didn't practice a lot of drills, uh, and the players kind of, you know, kind of resented that. You know, because they they would go to the Montreal Forum and see the Canadians practice, and they wanted to to you know try more drills. They wanted to buy video equipment uh, to to make the team better, and and uh, the coach said, Nah, I'm not going to do that. You know, you. You guys see yourself on videotape, and you you won't believe it's you doing that stuff, you know. So he wasn't really forward thinking. Uh, the practices, Fred Glover would actually suit up and play with the team at the scrimmages, and the players realized that the scrimmages would not end until he managed to score a goal. So the players would tell the goalies in the practice, "Let him score, so we can go home." So that's uh, that's how it went. Uh, so when the NHL bought the team. Uh, Fred Glover resigned, and they got uh, a guy named Marshall Johnson, uh, who was a, a popular player with the Seals, and he was college educated, and he was, you know, he was he, he later actually became the, the GM with the Ottawa Senators, uh, and he was a, he was a really smart guy, you know, he, he understood how to deal with players, and he understood they had to practice things, so um, so they did a whole reboot of the franchise for 74, 75 new uniforms that, too, right? New uniforms, Pacific, uh, Pacific blue and, and, uh, white uniforms. 
they looked a lot like the UCLA uh, football uniforms at that time. Uh, I, they're they're kind of cool. They're, 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 there's a lot of uh, the, uh, maybe kind of a turquoise teal type of uh, uh, the pants were a little uh, uh, the, the road the road versions looked a little powder powder blue. Um, and some of the players said, "Oh yeah, they're they're kind of nice, you know, maybe a little girlish." Uh, but uh, as one of their, one of their goalies, Gary the Cobra Simmons, mentioned, they said, "Look, you know, we uh, we're hockey players. It's not a fashion show. We're trying to win. Uh, we're trying to win hockey games." Um, well, there are so there are a lot still, of there are a lot of uh, uh, uniform fetishists out there, and there right. are, there's a whole thing who actually do actually look at that new seventy four seventy five set of colors and uniforms as actually being quite memorable and actually well done almost to, to the point of being a bit uh, color wise ahead of its time. Um, yeah, so no, they, were, they were they were they were kind of cool uniforms. I mean, you look at the color pictures now and and you know these these actually stand up and they could be in the NHL right now with those with those uniforms. So yeah. um so yeah, I thought I, I have a, a replica in my uh, in my closet right now. I would imagine um, you'd have more than yeah. a few replicas of and other I, things from the team, right? I I have a more than a few. I I have a I have the uniforms. I got seals, pennants. I got I got a whole bunch of stuff. But, but, um, but uh, for that for that new season, so the NHL actually owned the team at that point, and uh, so never a good thing, did, right? Oh, pardon. Never a good thing to have the league come in and own the yeah, team. Yeah, because they, you know, it's kind of a double edged sword because you know the other the other owners are owning the team, and I mean, how much money do they want to spend on the team? But um, but their management at that point got better. Um, and they did trade a lot of their good players away that had higher salaries, uh, but then they, they started to rebuild, and they kind of bet the bank on... Um, uh, the Seals had traded away so many first-round draft choices uh, that they hadn't had a first-round draft choice for years, so that season they finally got their first-round draft choice and they had the third overall pick, and they, they drafted a guy named Rick Hampton. Uh, they had just changed the rules in the, in the NHL. Rick was only 17 years old when he was drafted. He was a defenseman out of Ontario, and uh, he was a, a, like a really, really good player. But, you know, he was really young. By the time they started playing, he was only 18. And this is at a time when the salaries are starting to climb. His his uh, agent was Alan Eagleson, who was notorious for uh, he helped raise the salaries, but he also got into a lot of trouble for uh, for uh, 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 let's say uh, embezzling uh, so the money that uh, some, was supposed to go to some of the players. But so Rick signed a three-year contract for six hundred thousand dollars, and uh, that made a lot of the Seals players jealous because. They were making a lot less. They were making, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, and now you got this eighteen-year-old kid making three, four times as much as they are. And then to compound that, the first thing he did was he bought a Mercedes-Benz, which was, didn't go over very well with the players. And uh, um, so, but the big problem was usually when you get someone like that, you want to bring the guy up slowly, maybe have him in the minors for a little bit, you know, get him acclimated. And they threw him into the media spotlight. They started calling him the next Bobby Orr, uh, so that he had a lot of pressure on him right from the start. And I, I interviewed Rick up in Ontario, and he was he was incredibly forthcoming about uh, about you know what happened and, and the pressure he was under. And 
he was one of the best interviews in the documentary. Well, um, why don't we uh, segue now to the, the the last, I guess, season, um, uh, the demise, right? Uh, it seemed that uh, the the league had a a new potential owner, or I guess did uh, purchase, correct, um, on some uh, some hopes of of doing some other things and maybe making a final sort of good, solid go at it. Um, you want to kind of sort of take yes, us into right. that because. Yeah, that that the, the second to last season, uh, the uh, the they were improving, and then the the new GM, a uh, guy named Bill McCreary, uh, he and and Marshall Johnson, the new coach, did not. Uh, there was some friction between them. Marshall Johnson felt that Bill McCreary always wanted to. He came aboard after Marshall was named coach. Mm-hmm. He always felt that Bill wanted to coach it himself. Uh, they fired uh, Marshall. Uh, halfway through the season, and the team skidded the the last half of the season. But then Bill McCreary, you know, uh, uh, was no longer the coach for their final season. Uh, for that year, seventy five, seventy six, uh, a, a gentleman named Mel Swig steps forward. Mel Swiggs was one of the owners of the original Western Hockey League Seals. He was a very well respected businessman in San Francisco. Uh, he owned a, a hotel chain. He was very, very well uh, connected politically. Uh, he bought the team, uh, and it was, that was a very popular move with the players. Uh, but he realized that the team to survive in Oakland could not stay at the 12,500-seat Oakland Coliseum. They needed to be in San Francisco. And so uh, they made a deal with the mayor and with the, the, with the, the politicians in San Francisco to build a brand new, I believe it was an 18,000 seat arena in the heart of San Francisco. Hmm. Uh, that was that was going to be a done deal, uh, and so that was they were all excited about that. You know, they're going to have a you know a lot more fans. It's right in the city. Uh, they have you know public transit going right to the arena, so they thought this was all great. So that last season, the Seals make some they they draft a new player. Uh, uh, a guy named Dennis from Rook, who mm-hmm. I believe was only like five, about five eight, five seven, five eight. They called him Pee Wee. Pee Wee. That was that was his nickname. And this, and I remember he just electrified the team. A little guy that people thought was too small to play in the NHL, and he became. I I I think he scored. I, I say a little over thirty goals that season. He was so exciting to watch, and people whenever he came on the ice. People started yelling Marouk, Marouk, and it was it was a, just an electrifying uh, guy to watch. And that season, the Seals were, were really improving. They they didn't make the playoffs. They came very close to making the playoffs, but they had won more games than they had in years. Their attendance had 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 climbed to the highest levels in years at the Oakland Coliseum, and it was just a very very positive feeling around the team. And uh, unfortunately, after after the season ended, uh, the deal a new, a new mayor had come in, and the deal to build a, a new arena in San Francisco was killed. And with that, uh, you know, they could they realized you know there's no way we're going to make our money back now. We can't we can't stay in Oakland. Uh, and so um, the the Gun Brothers uh, who were connected in Cleveland, they had an arena in there. They were the minority owners of the team. They convinced George Gund to move the team to Cleveland. 
Uh, and the Richfield Coliseum, in the Richfield Coliseum, 30 miles geez, yeah. outside of downtown Cleveland, right? Almost a white yeah, elephant in many people's eyes. Yeah, I believe it was between Akron and Cleveland. And it was like a, like a halfway point, I believe. It was, it was the way it was explained to me. The arena was later torn down because, you're right, it was a white elephant. Um, so it, it basically the, the players had to pack up and leave, relocate everyone to Cleveland, those who wanted to go. Uh, like a lot of the front front office staff didn't go, um, and you know the hockey cards that year they didn't even have time to redo the hockey cards. <laughs> you know they they were the players were wearing their seals uniforms and a lot of the the uh, seals colors, and so you know I, I think they announced it in July. It might have been June or July when they announced they were moving, and then you know they started playing preseason was in September. Um, so it was not a um, they had a huge arena, but you know we, we talk a lot about the the Cleveland uh, era in the film, and the players said sometimes it felt like they were playing just in front of the ushers, <laughs> uh, and you'd see like thousands of empty seats in some of those games. It was it was it was pretty sad, and they limped along for two seasons, um, and then uh, George uh, uh, Noel Swig sold his ownership to the Gun Brothers after one year. And then after two seasons, it, it got so bad that they couldn't even afford to, to pay the players at, at some points. And the players had to vote once before a game whether they were going to play that night or not. Um, and then uh, they, they, the team was absorbed into the Minnesota North Stars. And then North Stars later moved to uh, moved to uh, uh, Dallas. So uh, I, at some point we're going to do we're going to do something on 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 Cleveland uh, in the NHL um, uh, on another episode because that's that's that too is a fascinating story. But I, <clears throat> maybe we should uh, I'd like to maybe and first of all I want to say thank you for all your time thus far. Um, maybe we can end sort of though on a happier note, right? Um, and I think you did a very good job both at the beginning of the film and at the end. Um, I guess frankly setting up the irony of what is now a very successful franchise in the Bay Area, and maybe you can tell us sort of how that came about and maybe perhaps a, a certain uh, famous hockey player by the name of uh, Wayne Gretzky and, and, and his role in maybe helping spark that yet again. Right. Well, well, the Gunn brothers, you know, they, they own the Minnesota North Stars and they, they made a deal because uh, the team, they wanted, the, 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 there was a move to move the team to Dallas. So they made a deal where they sold the team, the North Stars, and they got the rights to the new the new NHL franchise, which was San Jose. So uh, that's that uh, that you know that that helped create the the San Jose Sharks. Um, the, the interesting thing about the Sharks, uh, hockey in California was getting popular because when Gretzky was was traded to Los Angeles, uh, you know that what that did for ticket sales with the LA Kings was tremendous. There was so much excitement about hockey in the Bay Area, so that really created a uh, uh, you know, a groundswell of support for for hockey uh, in California, which you know created the Ducks, uh, which created uh, the San Jose Sharks. So um, I was working in television in Sacramento at that time, and we we did some stories about the startup of the Sharks, and uh, they had a lot of very smart people working for them. the The research they did on marketing, they knew exactly where their uh, um, their fans were where where to do outreach, you know how they were going to promote the team. So they they did a wonderful job. And not to mention, you know, they were in San Jose. They built a brand new arena. They played at the old Cow Palace for two years, but they built a brand new arena in San Jose, heart of the Silicon Valley, where you have all that uh, 
all that uh, internet money. Uh, so that was a you know that was that was a, a good thing. And interesting uh, that they would they would choose to play at the Cow Palace for two years while their arena was being built, and not the Oakland Coliseum uh, arena. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was. Uh, uh, I you know I don't remember for sure because uh, I know the Oakland Coliseum was was remodeled because they realized because the Warriors play there sure. that it was uh, too small and they left the the the, the walls up but they they re basically gutted the inside uh, and made it deeper and I think now it holds about eighteen thousand fans I I think I don't I, I'm not sure exactly I don't know if that was happening during that time. Um, uh, but it, it might have been, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure why the Cow Palace and why not, not the Oakland Coliseum. Well, it's also but, interesting uh, too that that the whole idea of of, of getting a, a an arena in closer to uh, San Francisco proper really hasn't happened, right? Uh, we're still looking at the Cow Palace as as a place for for certain events, and then the as you mentioned now, what is now the Oracle Arena is, uh, I think it's the Oracle Arena, um, you know, is is still there, uh, albeit rehabbed. Um, but there is is really no quote unquote from scratch modern facility in the in the San Francisco area proper. Right. I know the Warriors have been trying to get a new arena built. I don't know if that what the status of that deal is, but that's been a that's been an ongoing thing uh, to to do that. You know, because uh, you know with the with the Giants baseball, they built a arena downtown, which was which has been a huge success. So, uh, yeah, it would be nice to have an arena in, in downtown. But, uh, um, but but you mentioned San Jose and hockey. Um, you know, the, the Sharks kind of distanced themselves from the Seals when the team started because, you know, the Seals were kind of a laughingstock. They were a failed franchise. But uh, uh, just a few weeks ago, on January 7th, I believe it was, or 8th, the Sharks, you know, to celebrate their 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 25th anniversary and uh, the 50th anniversary of the NHL, they did a uh, Seals tribute night. That That's I went great. To. And uh, uh, it was too late to include that in my film because the film was already done. But I did go with my video camera. I, I shot a six-minute video that's on YouTube. Uh, but the Sharks did a wonderful job. They invited uh, uh, Joe Malosh, uh, Dennis Marouk, um, Gary, the Cobra Simmons, um, Norm Ferguson, Ernie Hickey, uh, there was somebody else too, Albert Marshall, mm. uh, and they, they did a, a wonderful tribute night. They, everybody who came got a Seals t-shirt. That's great. And the players, yeah, the players, I, I don't know if they knew what to expect. I think part of them were wondering, will, will, they, will anyone really care? Uh, and the, the Sharks set up an autograph, autograph table, a long table where all the Seals players could sit as people came in and they had, uh, uh, you know, old seals, jerseys and memorabilia and sticks and programs. And when people came in, they were rushing over to the seals players. I have never seen so many seals jerseys in one place before. Uh, and they were like five deep asking for autographs. People brought sticks saying, you signed the stick back in 1973 <laughs> for me. You know, I've always kept it. And, the players were just genuinely, genuinely, I think, awestruck at, at the, the the level of uh, of love that was shown to them. And then uh, uh, before the game, the the players and I, I was actually right behind them with my camera as they, they they went through the Sharks dressing room. They went to the uh, uh, to the to past the Sharks bench and they went on the ice. They had a red carpet. They introduced the team. Um, and I and I could uh, I was standing right next to the bench as the Seals players were being introduced. The Sharks were players were all 
conning their sticks into the into the into the boards uh, in a tribute to uh, to their NHL predecessors. So it was a it was a very emotional night. That's that's great, and, that, and frankly, that's that's one of the main reasons why I'm I'm uh, venturing into this uh, this this podcast because uh, I, and you can pick a team, you can pick a league, you can pick. There's always it's it's a there are people's memories of of teams and when they whether they're you know important parts of their lives or uh, when they're, they're you know growing up as children and uh, there's an impact there and um, you hate to see sort of that history kind of just fade away or or worse be just kind of uh, ignored or just unknown um, in your mind though is and and I know there are professional historians out there that that care about this kind of stuff and and I guess I kind of do too and I suspect you as well. Um, is the the history of the Seals franchise, is that effectively found a home? Is it nestled in within the San Jose Sharks, or could the Dallas Stars lay claim to that? Does the league have any care about where sort of the official stats and, and history and lineage of the Seals might uh, uh, live on, or does it not matter at this point? That's funny you should mention that, because uh, one of the people who helped support the documentary was uh, is with the Dallas Stars organization, and we talked about that, and he said that uh, you know the SEALs' DNA is in in the, the Dallas Stars. Um, but then you could also argue that, you know, because the Gun Brothers were the owners of the, of the, the you know, the SEALs' part owners, uh, the Barons that came the North Stars, and then brought the team, uh, got the new franchise that that it that that they they have a, a say in that as well. So yeah, I think there is a connection because I don't think hockey would have come back if it hadn't been for the seals. You know, the seals did create uh, during their time there. There were a lot more hockey rinks were built. Uh, so you know, there was certainly a lot more awareness of uh, of the NHL because of the seals. Uh, you know the sharks have you know have upped the ante so so dramatically though, but uh, you know there's a lot of things. You know it's uh, it's uh, you know it's Gretzky coming to California. Uh, you know it's the seals. You know being in the NHL. Uh, you know it's the brilliance of the, the the sharks marketing people. So you know there's, there's enough credit to go around. Well, um, hopefully, a little of that credit will go to you with this uh, with this documentary. I'm going to uh, just ask one last question, then. Uh, and by the way, again, we're talking um, uh, about uh, the film, you know, that's dedicated to the history of the California Golden Seals, called oddly enough, the California Golden Seals story. And 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 Mark Gretchmel's been very uh, kind to spend uh, quite a bit of time with us on this. But um, maybe we could add, uh, wrap up with um, your. We talked on the phone earlier about your. Uh, or via email on uh, the story about how you got Gretzky to uh, uh, participate in the film. You want to sort of wax us with that little story? Yes. Uh, um, he was one of my Hail Mary interviews. Uh, I, I really wanted to get him because um, I had read that the first NHL game he ever saw in person was the Seals game. Uh, and so I I uh, actually, I when I worked in Edmonton, I, I, I saw Gretzky a lot, you know, like at airports or events, but, and, and of course playing, but I'd never really met him. Um, I, I had spoken to his former agent once on the phone, so I, I emailed his agent and, uh, and, you know, told him who I was, that I was in Edmonton, and uh, what I wanted to do, and he said, well, you know, I don't represent Wayne anymore, but I, this is who does, here's his email, Send him a message and mention that you you spoke with me, and uh, I did. I sent off an email, 
and uh, they said, okay, we'll uh, um, we'll pass this along to Wayne, and, and uh, we'll we'll get back to you. And so a week later, I get an email, and I remember when I got it, I thought, oh yeah, they're going to say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, Wayne, uh, it's too busy right now. And they said, uh, you know, Wayne would like to do this. You know, when when do you want to do it? <laughs> oh, and so uh, he lives, you know, here in, uh, so in outside of Los Angeles, and so he wants to do it at a hotel and uh, uh not not far from where he lives and uh so uh they but they said you know he's on a very very tight schedule you know you can have him for for 8 minutes but but he has to he, he has to leave so yeah you, you have to be ready and everything it's okay great so so uh you know he set up and uh uh you know we're waiting for him at the lobby and his assistant shows up and it's you know and we're waiting and and she goes, oh, said, have you seen Wayne yet? I go, no. I said, oh, well, he's supposed to be here. And, you know, but now it's the time when we're supposed to be starting to do the interview. And now I can just see my time ticking away. And so we're walking around the hotel trying to find Wayne Gretzky. And then we, we finally find him. And, uh, uh, you know, and uh, and he could not have been nicer. And, uh, you know, he, he told the story about, uh, like, he knew the SEALs history he told a story about uh, how his grandmother took him to a game at Maple Leaf Gardens when he was five, and it was against the Seals. Um, the Seals goalie at the, uh, was a guy named Gary Smith, and Gary Smith was famous for uh, skating up the pi- uh, up the ice with the puck and trying to score a goal uh, as a goalie. And uh, Wayne saw that. Uh, then years later, when he uh, got into professional hockey with the Indianapolis Racers of, sure. of the WHA, uh, his roommate was Gary, none other than Gary Smith, and they had talked about that first game. So he told that story. Uh, you know, he talked about the white skates. He talked about the Seals' legacy. Uh, he, he could not have been nicer. And then uh, he stayed longer than the eight minutes that that we were allotted. And and uh, and then you know, we, I uh, I had a, a neighbor helping me with the, with the shoot, and so I, I was hoping that maybe we could get a, t- a picture of the three of us after. The interview, and so Wayne said, uh, "No, so well, we'll take a picture with with each of you, so you can both have a picture." <laughs> oh, great, you know. And then I, I had brought a seals jersey along as a backdrop, and I thought, well, you know, it'd be nice maybe to have the seals jersey in the picture. And when he saw the jersey, oh, so oh, let's, let's put this. And he grabbed it and he held it up, and uh, and so I have a picture of me and Wayne in the seals jersey, and and that helped uh, helped uh, give the film a lot of legitimacy that. Uh, I, I really I'm grateful for. Well, I, I, I can't wish you enough luck uh, with it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly when this uh, episode's going to go out, but hopefully certainly within the next month or so. Um, I, I suspect that uh, this podcast will be, you know, it's sort of a persistent uh, uh, opportunity for people to a discover or rediscover the story of the seals. And then secondly, um, actually, be convinced to make a purchase of of the movie but uh for now it is available uh on uh itunes uh for purchase yeah. and for rental i believe also standard definition versus high definition it seems like there are lots of different flavors and it's called the right. Cali- it's-, it's called the california golden seal story uh and and mark uh, gretchmill has been the the writer the director the producer of it and uh, has been more than generous with his time uh, recounting the story of not only uh, him making him making this film, but also the the uh, subject matter of the film uh, and the, the the Golden Seals uh, franchise. I I can't wish you enough luck with it, and uh, it's a hoot. Uh, I you know I've watched it uh, uh, twice now, and I think it's uh, it's just it's 
it's it's a fascinating story and one that uh, needs to be remembered. And I, I I think you should be commended for for taking such time and effort and sweat and and dollars to uh, to do so. And um, frankly, maybe you should have that uh, that YouTube footage from the um, from the uh, that Sharks game, perhaps as part of the uh, the DVD release someday. Huh? Yeah, uh, uh, possibly that that gets into a whole thing with the uh, with the. Uh... Uh, with the NHL, but uh, but you you can watch it on on YouTube uh, for free right now if you'd like. There you go. Well, thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate it. Uh, any other items or things or? Uh, no, I, I the one I, I did want to mention like part of the reason that, that kind of got me to 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 do this was a, a gentleman named Brad Kurtzberg wrote a book about the seals, and he was like like me, like a seals fan. Uh, He's on the on the East Coast, and uh, his, his writing the book helped me uh, want to make the film. And uh, Brad was was very generous with his time. Uh, I, I I interviewed him for the movie as as a seals expert, and uh, I'm very grateful for him as well. Yeah, he was very good. He was a very good, uh, uh, almost sort of voice of uh, third party uh, uh, objectivity, uh, and um, and and a and a forceful voice too. So I, I I couldn't agree more. Thank you, and I'll see you online. I'll, I'll follow up with you uh, in the uh, days and weeks to come. All right, thank you. Great. I appreciate it, Mark. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening, and uh, thanks to my guest, Mark Gretschmill. Uh, the California Golden Seal story is available for rental, for download on iTunes. So uh, check it out. I highly recommend it. Uh, we only scratched the surface, so... Uh, There's tons more in that movie, so uh, check it out. And uh, as for us, hey, you know, we're uh, just getting going here, so uh, feel free to uh, rate and review us on iTunes, please, favorably. That would be awesome, especially five stars. Uh, Go to our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com. You'll see all kinds of links and good stuff there. You can subscribe to our email list. Uh, You can send us uh, a note with some um, exceptions to the show or some interesting ideas you might have. Feel free. And then again, on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, and you'll also see us somewhere there on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, this is Tim Hanlon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Let us know how you like the show. And uh, we look forward to seeing you sometime soon down the road. Take care.